uh, the reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 4, reading verses 1 to 8. I invite your uh, hearing of the word of God in reverence and also in faith from Romans chapter 4. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I invite you to join me again in a time of prayer. Our Father, again, we come before you and we bow our heads before our great God in heaven, majestic in glory and power and might. Father Almighty, we bow our heads to the great Son, uh, very God of very God, and uh, to the good Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. Uh, profoundly thankful are we for the grace that has come to us, the new life we have in the kingdom of God. You have called us out of a kingdom of darkness and through marvelous grace and power come upon us to give us new life and new birth and to join us with the long strain of the godly line. Blessings upon measure wealth and riches in the heavens. And we reckon we have this because Christ made himself poor for our sakes, that in him we might become rich. And may those thoughts influence everything and give us perspective on all the things of life. And, but we come to you acknowledging that we're weak and, and perplexed and grieving and so many other uh, thoughts and emotions we bring. But in this hour, may the word of God minister to us and we pray for our needs that you would minister to those who are perhaps perplexed about some issue of life, decisions they may, may must make. We pray that you would guide them with your counsel and perhaps with the wise counsel of others. We Pray for those who are uh, discouraged that you would, uh, through your spirit, encourage them. Uh, and if, again, any are grieving uh, some loss, perhaps loss of a loved one, loss of something else, that may they find every comfort uh, in the presence of God, who is the God of all comfort. Uh, these are individual needs. We have corporate needs as well, uh, that we would stand firm as a congregation, loving one another, being patient with one another, um, being concerned for the interests of others, uh, that we might, uh, through loving one another, uh, display that we belong to you. And we are profoundly thankful for the word, for Phil, a minister of the word. Uh, we ask your blessings upon him, his family, his wife, his children. 
and we are thankful for his uh, ministry in the word to us this morning. And we pray for the ministry of the word. You are the Lord of the word. May it go forth in power, accomplish every purpose you have ordained for it for us this morning. Because your word is forever fixed in the heavens. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and it gives us wisdom and skill for living in a fallen world where we are pilgrims passing through to our eternal home in the celestial city. Now, these things we ask in the name of Christ, the eternal word, in his name, amen. Thy will be done. Lord, hear our prayers. One of the things that the uh, scriptures uh, implicitly uh, bids us uh, to do is to take account of doctrinal or theological history uh, in the scriptures. Uh, because it helps us understand uh, how God does things. Because he does things always in the same way. And so when we're studying the doctrine of justification from the Apostle Paul, uh, we should ask ourselves, well, how did God do it in the Old Testament? Well, the same way. Because that's how God acts. And so Paul repairs here to the justification of Abraham and David. He's going to use these two giants of the Old Testament uh, to confirm his theology of justification minus human contributions anyway. Uh, namely, our works. But I might also add the human contributions of, of a human priest. Because those contributions don't justify us either. And it is the reminder that Abraham and David were justified and forgiven uh, by faith alone. Which is exactly what the Apostle Paul uh, has been telling us uh, to remind us the importance of doctrinal and theological history. So Paul is going to illustrate the beauty of our faith with Abraham and David, specifically that the basis of our standing before God is the imputed righteousness of Christ minus any contribution on our part and totally based upon His work for us. Is the entire basis. No other basis. None whatsoever. Uh, first, we begin with Abraham in verses 1 to 5. So, how was Abraham justified? Justified by the righteousness of Christ, therefore establishing Paul's point. So, what did Abraham contribute to his justification? Nothing. He believed to be sure. We don't discount that. Uh, but believing is the means of justification. It's the means to apprehend what God did for him. But his believing and his faith was not the cause. God was the cause in Christ. That's how Abraham was justified. His works are excluded. Therefore, inherent righteousness is excluded. Let's look at the text, Romans 
Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, For if Abraham were justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God and was reckoned or imputed to him as righteousness. Uh, the quotation is from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. I mean, let's just, just confirm that. Because I'm making the point that the Old Testament is going to confirm Paul's theology. Uh, Paul brings us nothing new respecting the doctrine of justification. Where does Paul get his theology? From the Scripture. One place is Genesis chapter 15 uh, and verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned or imputed it to him as righteousness. Context here is very important, as it always is. The context is Abraham is childless. And by the way, uh, we know because of his age, he's also unable. As he grew older and older and older, he became unable to sire children. And uh, the same thing is true with respect to his wife. And so I'm excluding infusion. Infusion uh, is a term that applies to our sanctification where we do participate. I'm not discounting participation in moral affairs, but we're not dealing with moral affairs. We're dealing with legal affairs. And Abraham is unable to produce or to sire a son that God has promised him. And so, because he's unable, his efforts avail nothing. Nevertheless, God takes him outside. He's made this promise to him. He's going to have a son. He takes him outside. It happens to be uh, after sundown. Uh, he shows him the stars. And he says, so shall your descendants be. Now the promise, of course, on a human level, appears impossible. But Abraham believes that God will make it happen. And so God imputed to him righteousness. Now, the word reckon or impute is to charge to an account based upon someone else's righteousness. Let's turn to uh, Paul's, uh, one of Paul's commentaries on this text in uh, Galatians uh, chapter 3. In verse 8, because you might be saying, well, well you know, where, where's Christ in all this? Well, Christ is the theophany making the promise to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So the gospel was present in this promise of many sons and daughters. And the Gospel, of course, is in the theophany of Christ uh, who, is, who is, making, is making the promise. Well, let's, let's press this further from the context. Uh, God commands uh, Abraham uh, to bring some animals and to cut them in two. And then in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 12, we read, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. 
By the way, that same word is used of Adam in Genesis 2.21 uh, before God uh, uh, brings to him Eve. A deep sleep. Uh, you do not work when you sleep. I know that may sound silly, but I'm pressing the point. It was God's grace. Not any contribution whatsoever of Abraham. He was in a deep, sound sleep where God is going to confirm the promise based upon divine actions alone. Let's, let's, let's read again uh, or look at uh, Genesis chapter 15 in uh, verse 17. came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these two pieces. What is that? It's the theophany. It's the presence of Christ. I mean, do you see the, the flaming torch and, and the smoking oven? It's exactly how God led Israel in the wilderness. God doing it the same way. But Abraham's asleep. In other words, God is going to guarantee the promise absent any contribution whatsoever. He's confirming a covenant with Abraham based upon his work. And the surety of God in Christ is going to secure the promise. That sons are going to come. And the sacrifice of the animals anticipates what? The sacrifice of Christ. Substitution. Ratification of the covenant. By the way, we find this Similar manner, parallel manner, book of Genesis. Adam and Eve sin. No, no, they're guilty. Immediately they know they're guilty. And so they take some fig leaves and clothe themselves. But God rejected their work. Provided them with the skin of a sacrificial animal for clothing. Genesis 2, chapter 21. By substitution, there was forgiveness for Adam and Eve because God took the life of an animal so that he could have a skin, meaning blood was shed, anticipatory of the work of Christ. God doing in the same way, always the same way, becomes more explosive in terms of the meaning in the New Testament. But nonetheless, it's an alien righteousness. It's the basis of Abraham's justification as well as the justification of Adam and Eve. It's the basis of our entire standing before God. Nothing else. No contribution. Because our work's unacceptable. But His work is. And again, not a moral issue. It's legal. I'm not, I'm not discounting morality, but that's not the subject matter here. Become the subject matter later in the book of Romans, but not here. Subject matter here is justification. Not sanctification, which includes morality and our participation. So God declares us righteous based upon the righteousness of Christ, charged to us or imputed to us, simply based upon the good pleasure of His will. Staggering references grace because it doesn't do it for everybody. That should profoundly humble us and uh, bind us uh, to Him in worship and service to be sure. So that Jesus is the entire basis of our acquittal and absolution. Again, Abraham did not work. He was asleep. He believed, I understand that. 
but his believing wasn't the cause of his justification. Christ is the entire basis of his acquittal and absolution. Worked for him. And his merits were charged to the account of Abraham. Think about what Paul has just done. He's telling us that his theology comes from the Old Testament. Uh, he's uh, delivering to us this great doctrine, but he's reminding us that it comes from the Old Testament. The way God did it with Abraham is the way God always does it. History, theological history, doctrinal history. And having said that, remind you that Abraham is our spiritual forefather. I mean, that was the greater point. Um, Abraham wasn't going to produce children like the stars uh, of, of the sky physically. The greater point was spiritual sons, the power of the gospel. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7. Paul tells us that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.26 We are all sons of God through faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. We believed in the promise of God. Justification. And God imputes His righteousness to us. Uh, Paul also repairs to a worldly analogy. Verse 4. A man works. Uh, what does a man get for his works? Well, he gets uh, he gets a wage, but it's it's an obligation due him, not gratuitous in any manner or form. It's based upon his works, but our salvation is totally gratuitous, based upon the sovereign grace of God. And that's not how God saves us. Again, let's look at the text of. Uh, verse 5, but the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned to him as righteous. Notice the phrase ungodly. That totally obviates infusion, which is the Roman Catholic system. That God gives us grace and in our hearts we cooperate with him and based upon that we're justified. God justifies the ungodly. There is no infusion. There's the grace of God alone. Two, two critical, at least two critical elements here. The first is believing upon the one justifying the ungodly. Obviating infusion and inherent righteousness. It, it is, it is important to understand that the Reformed view of justification, everything that Paul has been saying, obviates, undermines, destroys, works against the entire sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. Because our favor with God is based upon the righteousness of Christ alone. Priests cannot give it to us. Priests cannot forgive us. God does based upon 
the gift of His Son. Think about that. One of the largest churches in the world today is Rome. If you understand Romans chapter 4, Paul has just undermined their entire sacrificial system. Pardon me, sacramental system. It's a profound importance of understanding theology, whether it be in Romans or Genesis. And so we don't sacrifice Christ in the Mass. Just one sacrifice for all time. You know, by, by the way, that's, that's a profound way to witness Roman Catholics. That our, our hope is based upon the work of Christ alone. Second, Abraham's faith was reckoned as righteousness. Based upon Christ alone, we're declared righteous. The doctrine of justification. And it's not just that uh, that's the theology of the Apostle Paul or the theology of Abraham. It rifles through the entire Reformed uh, Church throughout history. And again, I remind you very quickly, in the Protestant Reformation, um, there was a validation, a rediscovery of these great doctrines. Um, not an invention of them, but a rediscovery because they had been hidden and obscured uh, by the Church of Rome. And God acts in grace and He raises up men and uh, because of the rediscovery of uh, these doctrines, one of the greatest revivals in all the world. We could, we could go beyond Rome, uh, look at the theology in particular the soteriology, not the ecclesiology, but the soteriology of St. Augustine. Both Protestants and Catholic lay claim to him. Uh, we, we reject Augustine's ecclesiology, but we affirm his soteriology. What was his soteriology? Here again, 4th, 5th century. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Where did Augustine get that? From the Bible? In these doctrines, the Reformed Church is monolithic. Uh, sad to say, most churches are, are losing this theology, which is so critical to understanding our salvation and the grace of God. You know, by the way, the Roman Catholic Church had a brief momentary flash of the doctrines of grace in a bishop by the name of Jansen. In the Jansenist movement, there was an appeal to the theology of Augustine and Augustine's soteriology and justification by grace through faith. The church rejected Bishop Jansen snuffed out his theology. Why is that? Because if you embrace Augustinianism in terms of the doctrines of the sovereign grace of God, 
you have no need for the Roman Catholic sacramental system. So even there was a momentary flash of a bishop. It's just the way that life works. What am I really trying to say? Is that we use doctrinal and theological history from the Bible, but we also look at church history to validate our theology here at Grace Bible Church. As a reminder, what God did in the past, He continues to do this very day. Thank God that He does. It's the basis of our salvation. And by the way, one of the most profound applications of this is not just corporate worship, but private worship. When you ponder these doctrines and you recognize that Christ alone acted in your stead, your, your immediate distinctive response is to thank God, to praise Him and to worship Him. A couple months ago, I was reading um, Francis Turretin chapters on the application of redemption. I found myself praising God. I'm not bringing attention to me in any manner whatsoever. It's the theology of the Reformed Church. Turretin was uh, took the place John Calvin in Geneva. Not as an immediate successor, but certainly a successor. Sad to say, after Turretin's death, what's the church always do? Revert to Rome. We should not, we must not revert to Rome. Why is that? Romans chapter 4. We're justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Essence of the gospel. You depart from that, you obscure the gospel. Well, David, leaving Abraham, David was justified in the same way. What God did for Adam and Eve, what God did for Abraham, He's going to do for David. And David's going to tell us how God justified him. Romans 6-8. to Second affirmation of his theology from the Old Testament. Uh, the citation... Um, now let's just, let's just read it. Verse 6, Just as David also speaks of the blessings upon the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Doctrine of imputation. Let's turn to Psalm 32. As Paul is quoting the Old Testament. Where does Paul get his theology? From the Old Testament. He's bringing nothing new. We don't do new things. We affirm the old. Psalm 32. First two verses. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Again, the context is decisively important. Because David is dealing with some sin in his life. We don't really know what it is. We just know he's struggling with sin. We also know that he's struggling over the fact that God is disciplining him. Uh, again, I would remind you by application, if you sin, uh, one thing for sure will confirm 
your sonship, and that is that God will eventually come if you don't repent, confess. And that's what David is going through, and he's struggling with it. But in his trial, he rediscovers the joy of what God has done for him, specifically that God reckoned or counted him as righteous apart from works. Notice again, Romans 4, verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessings upon the man to whom God imparts righteousness apart from works. This confirms that even though he has committed sin, God had reckoned him as righteous. Just as you and I today are going to sin in some way in thought, form, or deed, in many respects we won't even know it. Thank God that He justifies the the ungodly. Well, Phil, not me. Well, maybe Monday then or Tuesday, but at some point, you're going to sin. The righteousness of Christ is not taken from you. That's the point of David's joy in celebrating the grace of God. That's a profound realization. It speaks to the permanence of the righteousness of Christ irrespective of our sin. Now, I'm not making a case for immorality, antinomianism, or you've been saved by grace, so go sin all you want to. That's deal with those in subsequent chapters in our study of Romans. I'm just making the case that our justification remains intact irrespective of our personal sin. And by the way, thank God for that. Because it means that the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account as sinners is permanent, perfect, and immutable. Notwithstanding many, many Protestant churches that uh, hold to the fact that you can come to faith and then fall away an affirmation that they truly do not understand the primacy of the Gospel and the grace of God alone. Let me say that again. The righteousness of Christ is permanent, immutable. Even when we engage in personal sin, it does not mutate. It's not taken from us. And thank God that. That's the case. Because we can always glory in our Savior because of what He did for us. Therefore, we do not and cannot lose it. And so there's a necessary connection between justification and no works on our part. It's the work of Christ alone. David's sin that he's struggling with does not undermine Uh, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. It is a one-time event. Never to be taken from us because of God's grace. Um, Certainly by application, the dominant theology in most Protestant churches like the Roman Catholic Church or Eastern Orthodox Church is synergism. Uh, God works and we work. And in His work and our work, we're, we're saved. Our theology is monergism. God alone works in justification. 
because dead men cannot participate. It's the genius of understanding that Abraham was asleep when God ratified the covenant of His grace. Let's look at Romans chapter 11 and verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If you understand that text, you understand that synergism, it rifles through so many churches. Implicit, no, explicitly undermines the grace of God to their harm. I know they don't mean to do that, but this has nothing at all to do with sentiment. It has everything to do with understanding the power and the grace of God in our hearts. With the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, David realizes that in spite of himself, his sins are forgiven and covered. I mean, that theology is so incredibly beautiful. Let's, let's read it again. Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. In both cases, those verbs are in the passive voice. Meaning that David was acted upon. Also means the power and totality of what was accomplished by the work of Christ alone. Beautifully stated again in verse 8. Blessed is the man who sinned, the Lord will not take into account. The Greek text here has a double negative. We don't do double negatives in the English. The Greek text does. It's a way that the writer would use to stress uh, a very emphatic point. We could say it this way, the Lord will absolutely not take sin into account, present or future, respecting the doctrine of justification. This means that forgiveness of sin is inextricably linked to justification. The justification secures and it's the basis of our forgiveness. It highlights that our forgiveness is the product of the obedience of another, namely Christ. Now again, I'm not trying to undermine David's confession because in the psalm he, he speaks of the confession of sin. I'm just stressing Justification is a legal declaration, not a moral one. And then our forgiveness is based upon that legal declaration, not our morality. And that's what David is teaching us. In confirmation of the theology of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 4, we confess because of what Christ has done. Confession is very important, but God cleanses us. If you have your Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36. It's a text we've cited before, but um, certainly its theology is present here. I'm going to read the text to you, verses 25 to 27. Uh, I'd like for you to, to count the I wills of God. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So what'd you get? Five times. God is acting. The grace of God. I don't mean to be silly, but Ezekiel does not say, uh, this is my part and I do yours. The sole actor on this stage is God. Five times the I wills of God. Riveting our salvation to God's sovereign grace and mercy. Therefore, the cause of forgiveness is God's grace in Christ. That theology is the basis of David's recovery and joy and will eventually serve as God's removal of the effects of David's discipline. Again, let me restate that. David is rediscovering the doctrine of justification. It catches him. Causes him to reverse course. Causes him to bless God. Who justified him based upon the righteousness of Christ. And so contextually, Paul is affirming that what God uh, did in the Old Testament, he does in the New. And it's done the same way today. That our church acknowledges what God has done. We discover nothing new. That's what Rome has done. What Eastern Orthodoxy has done. What so many Protestant churches have done. We reject the new for the New Testament. We reject the new of our culture for the Old Testament. And we embrace and celebrate the reality that the way He did it in the Old is the way He does it in the New and the way He does it this very day. That the entirety of our salvation is based upon the imputation, the legal declaration, the charging of the righteousness of Christ to our account. And based upon that, our salvation is sealed forever. It cannot be undone. It cannot be lost. Again, I'm not making a case for um, immorality that come later in the book of Romans. But the basis, reason we should celebrate, rejoice. Sanctification and confession are radically important in the life of the Christian and in church life. Just not the subject matter here. Justification is. The work of Christ alone is. And that's really the gospel. It's a summons to people. Leave your works that are impermanent, imperfect, and mutable. Fall back and embrace the work of Christ alone. That's our foundation. It's the basis of our forgiveness, our joy, our celebration, the theology, Romans 4, Genesis 15, Psalm 32. And I'm just like you, ladies and gentlemen. I struggle. I think 
Sometimes I wake up thinking, oh my gosh. Terrible things I've did in days gone by. You know what recovers me? The grace of God and what He did on the cross in days gone by. Carl Truman, uh, theological professor at Grove City College, Pennsylvania, um, once had a student recounted to him that the student got on an airplane and uh, had the occasion, uh, grace of God, the way God works things, that he took a seat next to a Roman Catholic bishop who was flying on the same airplane. Well, what do two theologians do? Well, eventually they talk about theology. Eventually the student of Truman said, Do you have the security of your salvation? And the answer of the bishop was, one cannot be too sure of these things. So it's based on your works. That's a proper statement. But our salvation is based upon the work of Christ. Thank God. His work for us. If you understand this doctrine, you can be sure. The Roman Catholic prelate cannot be sure. I remind you that in terms of our understanding of the grace of God, we can be sure. And we must be sure. As a provocation to our worship riveting our hearts in service to Jesus Christ in light of all that He's done. And He did it alone. Thank God it's based upon His work alone. So two Old Testament titans show us how God justifies sinners. They believed. And righteousness was imputed to their account. May that heritage of the grace of God be your confession, your hope, the basis of your joy. And may it always abide richly in our church as fundamental of our worship of the grace of God in Christ.